All right, let's get into the Word of God. Amen? All right, Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 13. Please stand to your feet in reverence for God's holy Word. Hebrews 6, 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater uh, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You may be seated. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. I have... Uh, I have, in, I, I've titled this sermon, The Only True Guarantee. The Only True Guarantee. And I did go ahead and subtitle it or uh, clarify that this is part one because I know I will never get through this whole section. This is, this is the case that Jesus Christ, the work that he has done, the work, and you may not be as aware of this part, the work that he continues to do is the, the substance of the guarantee. What is the guarantee? What is guaranteed? What is it? Life, life, not just life after death. Walter. Being born again, yes. Somebody else? Huh? Life under the age. Life, eternal, born again. Life that begins now. Grows in substance. Grows in power grows in its ability to be witnessed, grows in its apparentness, if that's a word. In other words, Jesus Christ has done the work to cause you to be a child of God. We know the Bible tells us that, that he gave us the right to become children of God. Now we've talked about this a bunch of time. I'm not going to I'm not going to continue on, but the world and the church at large oftentimes parrots this catchphrase that we're all children of God. Now we've talked about this. The truth of the matter is is that all human beings are not 
children of God. That it is only a certain, uh, it's only a certain portion of the population who can actually legitimately say, I am a child of God. And that is, if you have been born into the family of God. Does that make sense? Now, there may be a, a measure of truth to the idea that we are children of God in a sense that God is our creator. But I don't think people, I don't think that's what people mean when they reference children of God. What they mean is when they say that all people are God's children, what they mean by that is, is that God has a special love relationship with that person and he would never harm them, that he has a forever type of, of unconditional love for them, and that we are all as we are all as much belonging to God as anybody else. And, all, and that includes all people, which means it includes all religions. It includes unbelievers. It includes staunch atheists who hate God and make it known. Now, is that right? I think that's problematic when we start to really open up the scriptures and we really start to... to to read and understand and study it in context. The truth of the matter is, is that no one is a child of God until they come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which then begins the new birth, that we are born again. You see, this language starts to make sense. It's what you've always said, one of the problems is why we always want to say that is, is that we don't want to be mean. We don't want to come across mean. But it's not mean to tell someone the truth. Now, you don't need to be a jerk about it. You know, the gospel is offensive enough. Just telling the truth is offensive enough. You don't have to, I don't have to add offense to it. But if someone is not a child of God and they are an enemy of God, which the Bible clearly tells us if you make yourself a, a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. We understand that all who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the wrath of God abides on them. But whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ shall never perish. He will be saved, right? And so the most loving thing that we could do is in love and in a spirit of peace, with the right motivation, let people know because we love them and because we're concerned about their, their eternity and not just their eternity, their now, is that, no, you are not a child of God. Here's what the Bible says, but you can be a child of God. Amen? Amen. So this is the guarantee that we would be born into the family of God that we would be blessed by God, that God would watch out for us, that God would take care of us. And as we'll see in the, in the text, one of the most blessed truths that I don't, know I've ever, I don't know if I've ever heard it taught from the pulpit is this. We oftentimes highlight the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, the burial of Jesus Christ in the grave, the resurrection of Christ out of the grave, and sometimes even the ascension of Christ into heaven. 
But oftentimes what is not taught on, and many of you by, you don't have to raise your hands, but would prove the point possibly if I asked you, many people have no idea about the ongoing forever, even after we experience the resurrection, the second coming, even after that, the ongoing continual right now and forever ongoing active work of the Lord Jesus Christ that he's doing right now. It is, he is interceding for us before the Father as we speak, even right now. As a matter of fact, your salvation comes because the Lord Jesus Christ has paid the price for your sins. But that's only a small portion of how it all works. Now, I'm a how guy. Heather is a what girl. What has God done? I'm cool with that. I, on the other hand, and we have different strengths and different weaknesses. She, she is a huge blessing because that leads her to act and minister and love on people in a different way than me. I, on the other hand, am a not just a what, but a how also. And so when I start thinking about salvation and someone being transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son, I want to know, how does that work? Right? Well, it's a process. It takes more than one act. So we always associate salvation with Jesus Christ dying on the cross, maybe being buried, and then resurrecting. We'll usually lump it into those, right? But salvation is not just the justification. I know I'm throwing some big words at you, but just buckle up and hold on tight. Justification is the declaring just of a person once they believe in Christ. It is a, it is a legal term. You're, you've been declared not guilty. Okay, You've been justified. Your debt is paid. But then comes sanctification which is now turn and sin no more. Go your way and sin no more. Furthermore, in sanctification, is not just the cessation of sinful behavior, but the pursuit of and growth in biblical, godly, spiritual behavior. So you have ceasing of sin and beginning of righteousness. Make sense? So as we continue on, yes, we've been justified, but we're not a one-and-done people, are we? We're still living. So you were saved 10 years ago, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, 50 years ago, whatever. What has your, your life looked like from that point on? If it's true that salvation is one-and-done, once saved, always saved, I got my fire insurance, then that's right. You could just get saved at a VBS, it feel really good that day and for a week, and you turn your back, walk away, never think about Jesus Christ again, and you're still going to heaven. Many people believe that, okay? The Bible makes us very scared of that because the Bible says that salvation, although it does have aspects of one and done, you've been justified before the Lord. Your debt is paid. It also continues on in a continual progressive reality as well that your one and done salvation 
will have abiding, growing, maturing, advancing results. That you are saved and you are being saved and you will be saved. Now, why did I just say all of that and what does it have to do with this? It's that Jesus Christ did die on the cross to pay for your sins. He did go into the grave to take your sins to the pit where it needs to be. He did rise from the grave to give you life. He did ascend in order to tear back the curtain that you might have access now into the real Holy of Holies. That the Holy Spirit would come and you would have immediate access upon the, the righteousness and the worthiness of the Lord Jesus Christ to go into the Holy of Holies whenever you like. You've got power now to actually live. And He sustains you and keeps you by His intercessory work. So that's what the text says. That Jesus Christ died was buried, raised, ascended, and entered into the Holy of Holies where he offers continual intercessory prayer for the saints. So the reality is that Jesus Christ, Yahweh, God, is in heaven as we speak, speaking your name, if you're born again, speaking your name to the Father, asking him to keep you, asking him to strengthen you, Asking him to give you power over sin. Asking him to move you and to, and to lead you into the places that you need to go. And the beauty of this, folks, is that Jesus Christ always gets what he asks for. So now you see why I've said what I've said. Why? Because that's what your guarantee is founded on that Jesus himself has gone before the Father and has said, I will never let you down. I will keep you and I will hold you and I will make sure that you come into who I've called you to be. You say, well, we got to make those decisions. Yes. Christ is the one who is at the root of those decisions. Yes. The problem is what? We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work in us to both will and to work for his good pleasure. Now the text, for when God made a promise, this is going to be built on something, and I'm not going to have very much time to get deep down into this, so I'm really just going to take the first verse or two and we're going to kick back to Genesis where this comes from. And we're going to look at some beautiful truths in Genesis. And I'm going to show you how, how they apply and why you should absolutely just absorb this truth. For when God made a promise. Now, what is he talking about? He says here, for when God made a promise. Now, what have we always looked at? We said, when you see a for or a therefore or a so that or these transitional words, what do we need to do? If we see a therefore, we need to look and see what it's there for, right? When we see a for, we need to see what it's for, right? So let's look back for a second. If you remember last week, we talked about this idea of 
can you lose your salvation or whatever? And uh, not to spend no time on that, basically, I exegeted the passage. I showed you, I think rather convincingly, at least in my mind, I hope it was for you, that this is not speaking of losing salvation. You cannot be born into the family of God and then be unborn, right? That doesn't work that way. You don't choose to be born. You can't choose to be unborn. God brings you in, and when you're in, you're in. You can't get back out. You can't take yourself out of the family of God. The question is not whether one loses salvation. The question then comes back to the nature of the type of uh, experience that the people had, what type of faith that they had, how deep did they go with God. And we see these words like tasted, shared, partook of. It was never this in, just taking it all in, just a little nibble, a little taste. And if you remember my absolutely ridiculous, which I call a little flat for later, licking on Keith Sherlin's coffee cup, I made it that ridiculous for a reason because that's how ridiculous it is to taste the things of God and not drink it down. I just spilt water all over my phone. I didn't want to get on my Bible. Is it raining? Holy Spirit, come. There's water that abounds. Y'all don't get the biblical reference? Come on, that was better than y'all gave credit. What was I saying? Yes, okay. Whether or not you're truly born again. So I, I can't take any more time on that. But the text points to the fact that he says, but we have better thoughts of you. We, we don't think that about you. We think that you are of a different type and you are characterized by things that pertain to salvation you see the the the, de de the declaration there he's saying you know this is not about salvation this just tasting and then going away there was no salvation there we don't believe that about you but we believe things about salvation for you okay coming off of that we move into this for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, uh, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And it goes on for some other things. But let's look back at where this comes from, which is Genesis. If you want to turn back with me, or I'm going to read it so you don't have to. Genesis chapter 22. And I'm just going to read this whole section quickly so you can see where this declaration comes, where God says that surely I will bless you. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring. And God swears by himself. Lots of stuff here, lots of nuggets. One that I'll point out to set up what I'm about to do here. It says that when anything is questionable, everybody swears by something greater. So in a court of law, you go in, and I know our country doesn't think very highly of God or the Bible, 
For some reason, most courtrooms still use the Bible. So what do we do when we go into a courtroom? We lay our right hand on the Bible. We say, I do solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. We make a declaration. We swear that we will do what we say we're going to do. And the whole idea is, is that that is a binding contract that you are putting yourself under the weight of or under the wrath of or under the consequences of that thing that you swear by, that if you break the oath, that you will have to carry the weight of that uh, by which you swear, right? Because they are going to make sure it's good. So this is the whole idea. God here in Hebrews chapter 6, it says, well, God through the apostle says this, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, the, the, uh, an oath is final for the confirmation, so that seals the deal. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things. That he swore by himself. We see that even more clearly up in verse 15. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise for people swear by something greater. So we know that God swore by himself. Now, it doesn't mean that he swore alone, but he did swear alone. What he means is he swore by, by holding it up to the reproach of his own character. In other words, that if God broke this, God would kill God. If God broke this, he would have to answer to himself. Now, that doesn't even make sense in our minds, does it? Because God is perfect. God is righteous. God cannot lie, which is the point of the passage. Is that when God makes a promise, the promise is based on who he is. And God cannot change lest he cease to exist. Did you, did you know that? You see, we shift and we change and we're, we're like shifting sand. One day we say one thing, the next day we say another thing. God's not like that. God's not like us in that way. God is immutable. He doesn't change. God does not change. He is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And so the beauty in that is, is that when God says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. And you can bet the farm on it. You can bet the bank. Why? Because if he broke his word, he would cease to exist. He would cease to exist. Now let's look back in Genesis chapter 22. I'm just going to read a big portion of this, and then we're going to kind of break it down. <clears throat> this is the account of Abraham going, God telling Abraham to go and sacrifice his son Isaac, his only son, and uh, Abraham's uh, trust and obedience to God, and that's where we find the quote that's found in Hebrews chapter 6. Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> and after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I, listen to this, 
I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, Abraham was a faithful man. You've got to remember that Abraham had already left his land for a land which he knew not on the, on the word of a God that he had began to worship, that had called him out, told him, said, leave everything that you've got, and you go out here where there's only certain death based solely on your trust of me, and I told you to do it. And Abraham's like, okay. And he left everything, risked his life. He believed God. He believed him, okay? And here it is that Abraham is told by God to go up that mountain and burn your son alive. And here he is. He gets everything together, and he tells his men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. How often times, I'm just going to pause here for just one second. I'm going to hit myself right in the mouth. How many times... Do we not have a burden or a call that is anywhere near the level that God has called Abraham? And we look at the call as a burden, and we are not, we are not serving by worshiping. Our, our service is not worshipful. It's not even joyous. It's a burden. We don't want to do it. We have a scowl on our face. We refuse to do it. Think of all the ministries in the church that so lack volunteers. Put that aside for a second. Think of all the times that God has called me or you to reach out to a friend, to love on a neighbor, to go out of your way to go make a visit or to sit down with somebody and talk with them or to take someone a meal. And sometimes we do it with joy, I think, that sometimes, but sometimes it's like, God, are you really asking me to do all that? I'd have to drive all the way to Ingalls and get a frozen dinner and heat it up, you know? And we don't worship, you know? You mean I've got to go over there and do those crazy redneck kids tonight at Spout? This is horrible, right? But, but Abraham here, God's like, hey, go burn your son alive on a mountain. And he's like, yes, Lord. Whew. That's heavy. That's heavy, right? He trusted God. Okay, let's keep going. He says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, I'm about to tell you why. Abraham is, is different than you. I'll, I'll tell you in a second. But, so don't, don't be crushed too bad by what I just said. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Now, now this is always gets me here. This is really, if you read this with a fine-tooth comb, and you really think, this really happened. Like, this is a real, like, Titus, come up here for just a second. Come on, I know, I'm always using you. Oh, sit back down, sit back down. You, Bubba, come up here. You be my son for a minute. Titus, he's like, I don't want to go up there. We just talked about that, didn't we? But Bubba, he's got all kind of joy, right? Mm -hmm. oh, all right. All right, look, I'm like, okay. I'm like, okay, come here. Hey, Bubba, look. Hey, uh, God, God told me to do something. And you, you say, what'd he say, Daddy? What'd he say, Daddy? Pretty good, right? All right, listen, uh, we're going to go up here and we're going we're gonna to burn a sacrifice alive to worship God. And uh, you want to go? Uh, yeah, sure. Sure, Daddy. Sure, Daddy. 
All right, here, you hold the wood that we're going to burn the sacrifice to death. Oh, here, look, hold the knife, too, that I'm going to stab it in the heart with and bleed it out before I burn it alive, okay? okay. Oh, here, hold this rope. I'm going to tie it down with, all right? All right, now me and you, we're going to go up here and kill and drain the blood and burn it alive, okay? Ready? Uh -huh. All right, come on. Hey, you say, where's the goat? Where's the goat? <laughs> Don't ask that, boy. <laughs> Good job. Go sit down, Bubba. You are awesome. <clears throat> Next time I'm going to make you do it, Titus. He says, so they both, so uh, he said, he laid the, laid the uh, wood on his son, uh, and he took, it, he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. Oh, I should have done that, Bubba. You said that. I said, you should have said, my father. My father. And he said, and it's got an exclamation there. You know, the punctuation is not in the Bible. You know that, right? None of the Bible has punctuation in the originals. It didn't exist. The way that they showed exclamation is the way that the words were formulated. But the, the translations do a pretty good job because they, these translators, they take the original language, they see how it's constructed, and they'll put an exclamation in when the word called for an exclamation. So this word here, it says, it says, my father, exclamation, right? So th the way that that's written in the original, if the translators got it right, and they're pretty good, it would have been Isaac saying, hold up, daddy, wait a minute, my father, father, hold on. What does he say? It, I, or uh, <laughs> Abraham turns around and says, here I am, son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Where's the thing that we're going to burn, Daddy? I love what Abraham says. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Now, there's lots of questions surrounding what Abraham meant by that. There's lots of questions surrounding when Abraham, remember when he said, he, he told the servants, he said, y'all chill here for a minute with the donkeys. Me and the boy is going to go up on the mountain. We're going to go worship, and then we're going to come again to you. So Abraham, seemingly, if we're just kind of reading between the lines a little bit, we don't know exactly what he meant. But with context, and we're kind of reading behind, between the lines, we know from the New Testament that this is the point of, of the demonstration of his faith that declared that his faith was genuine, right? And so we can gather from the New Testament and from the context that Abraham is probably making a pretty legitimate, heartfelt, uh, he's, he's saying something that he really believes right here. So he's saying, we're going to go up and we're going to worship and we're going to come again to you. Now some commentators would say all he meant was, I'm going to go kill the boy and bring him back. It doesn't say that he's gonna, we're going to come again and both of us be alive right? He could have he meant that he's going to bring the ashes back. Some commentators' opinions would be that Abraham had an idea of resurrection from other texts, and it's not super clearly laid out up to this point in Genesis, but some commentators say, well, God, or Abraham just believed that, and he was ready to kill him. We knew that he was going to kill him. We know that much from the text, because he raised the knife up. Well, we, we'll get to that part. I don't want to steal no thunder from the Lord. So we know that Abraham was going to kill him, right? So some say, well, Abraham believed that God could raise him from the dead, that he was going to kill him, burn him, 
And then God would raise them back up, and they would both walk back down the mountain. Okay? Whichever way you go, we know some facts. Number one, that whatever he was going to do to that boy and whatever the Lord was going to do, it would be an act of worship. So we know that even the most difficult things that God calls us to do can be an act of worship. It all depends on your perspective and the level of trust you have in God. Number two, we know that he was going to kill the boy. We know that. Number three, we know that he trusted God, that even if he slaughtered his son, that God was worthy of that pain that he would feel, that loss he would suffer, and whatever else came along with it, that he was ready to serve God in that way. So those are the things that we know. What did he believe? You know, was he going to be raised up? He goes on to further say God would provide for himself. What did he mean by that? We don't really know. Maybe he, maybe he had an idea that God would provide the ram in the bush. We don't know. What we do know is that he trusted God. Now, most sermons I've heard on this at this point would say something like this. And you are Abraham. And if you would only have faith, you would see that God never fails. That if you would just believe and you would just go with God and do what he's calling you to do, no matter how absurd it seems, you just do what God is calling you to do and you will find that the sky is the limit and God will always provide. Does that sound good? Sounds pretty good. I'm not so sure that's what we should draw, at least first, from this context. You say, what do you mean? Say, what do you mean, Pastor? Come on, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, let's keep up. Let's keep up and let's watch what at least the first, in my opinion, the first and primary uh, point, substance, reality that we should get from this text. My father, he said, here I am, son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Does that not reach into Hebrews chapter 6 where it says he swears by himself that he is making a way for what he has promised to do? All Abraham knows is that God is the God of the universe, that he is a God to be worshipped, that he is a God to be obeyed, that he is a God to be trusted. And if God says do it, then you just do it. Why? Because God has a reason why he's calling you to do what he's calling you to do. And you are so much lower. And I am so much lower than God. And we are so much, so less smart and adequate and understanding. We have such a, a narrow vision of just our time and our space and our feelings and our circumstances. That we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. But God is infinitely wise. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He is omnipotent. He can do anything. And you say, why do you say, why do you bring up omnipotence? Because 
when he asked Abraham to go do that, or when he asked Dakota to go do a thing, or when he asked Victoria to go do a thing, or, or Heather to go do a thing, whatever, when he asked you to go do a thing, it's not because he can't do it. God can do whatever God wants to do whenever God wants to do it. If he asks you or me to go do a thing, it's because he's allowing you to come along and be part of what he's doing. You see, so often we see it as a burden, people of God. I'm guilty as the next. I promise, maybe more. That when God asks us to go, to go do something, we'll be like, God, can't you send somebody else? And God's like, I can if you want me to, but that'd be crazy. That would be such, that would be, that'd be like saying, That'd be like somebody coming up to you and saying, hey, look, I'm about to go break this world record. That would be the most momentous moment in the history of mankind. Would you like to drive me to it? And you'd be like, ah, dude, I just, I just got in from a five-minute trip from the grocery store. I don't really feel like driving anymore, <laughs> you know? I mean, I know, you know, it's... I know I can get paid $10 million for driving you over there and being written in the history books for all of, and my name will be written down forever, but you know what? Eh, it's such a burden to drive you over there. You see what I'm saying? That's a silly example, but that's just, that's just a drop in the bucket. You see, but it's our perspective. It's our perspective, right? God calls us to do something. We're like, well, you can't do that with somebody else. God's like, I can do whatever I want, boy. I was just asking you if you wanted to go along for the ride. I asked, you know, Ezekiel, I'd be like, hey, you want to go to work with me on Monday? Well, he just gets in the way. Now, when we're doing landscaping, he actually does work. But when we're doing tree work, well, I worry about him. And he's come on a few jobs with me, and it's just like, I'm afraid I'm going to drop a tree on him, you know? So I'm like, hey, stand over there. He's like 100 yards away. I'm like, a little bit further. <laughs> you know, he worries me. But I'm not asking him to come help me with the tree job because I can't do it without him. I'm asking him because it's a blessing for him to be with me. You see what I'm saying? So anyway, that's what Abraham said. He said, he said you know, hey, let's do this. I want to worship. Then Abraham, re okay, let's, let's, get, let's go on. We fast out of time. I got four minutes. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. It does not say anything else. Man, there's just so many nuggets here. I get stopped every, every sentence. But, but here is revealed what wonderful fathering looks like, parenting. I mean, I think Isaac was well within his rights to be like, Hey, Daddy, uh, who are you... Uh, who are you going to kill? Uh, I know we're going to light this fire. You got something to burn. He's within his right, wouldn't you say? But notice, notice though, when he got the answer from his daddy, his daddy said, don't worry, son. God will provide. There's not another word spoken from Isaac. It says the two of them went up together. It does not say nothing about him dragging him up by the hair of the head. It doesn't say anything at all about him kicking and screaming. Nope. Is that the father's love for the father bled down into the son. 
and apparently, I'm reading into it a little bit here, I'm, I am taking a little liberty with the text, I'll admit it, but seemingly from context and what I read between the lines, that through his witness of his father Abraham's love of God, he was willing to go to the slaughter table. Now, did he explicitly know it was going to be him? We know he had a pretty good idea. But when his daddy said, don't worry, God will provide, he said, okay. Like father, like. So we move on. When they both, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar. Now at this point, you know Isaac is pretty familiar with this process and he's like, I thought you said God was going to provide, you know. But we have nothing, no record of Isaac saying anything. Now, maybe the author was just afraid to put it in there. But we know that God would have made him because this is inspired word of God. So we have no rebuttal from Isaac. He let, as far as I'm aware, he climbed up on the wood. He allowed himself to be strapped down. And he was ready to be burnt. Sound familiar? So the father led the son up the hill, put him on the wood, and he was ready to be sacrificed. Somebody said it. Let's keep reading. It gets even better. He laid him on the wood in order. He laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Got him bound. He takes out the knife. He reaches for the knife. He gets it in his hand to slaughter his boy, his son. He's going to do it. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son, but the angel of the Lord, pause. Now, we've talked about this before. If you'll remember, if you've taken notes, who is, when it says, when it has the definite article in front of angel of the Lord, who is that? Jesus. What do we call it? Yeah, good job. You got the learning. <laughs> this is called a Christophany or a theophany. Either one is okay. A Christophany. And what that means is it is a breaking in of the Son of God in sometimes physical form, but always in manifest form. So you remember, Jesus Christ has not shown up on the earth yet in his physical body. He's not a man yet. A lot of people don't get that either. You know, Jesus Christ was not a man until he was born on the earth. He existed in the form of God. We know that from Philippians, right? So... If Jesus wanted to come to the earth and deal with man before his coming, he had to manifest himself in different ways. And he, he manifested himself in different ways. But whenever you see in the Old Testament, and there is good historical evidence for this, I've read every place that I can find of it where it has the definite article, and the def definite article is the word the. When it says the angel of the Lord, every place I can find, I am 100% convinced that is Jesus. That is Jesus. Now, oftentimes it'll say an angel of the Lord. 
that, that's not Jesus as, as far as I'm aware. When it says the angel of the Lord. So here it is. Abraham has his son, Isaac, tied, bound, the wood in order, laid on the altar, ready to kill him and then light the match, light the, light the fire and offer him up as a burnt offering, offer him up as a sacrifice. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord, but Jesus, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. You see the double, this is, okay, so when you see an exclamation point, I'm sorry, a teaching point right here. When you see an exclamation point, that is a, that is a Hebrew way of writing. That's why the translators added in there so that you can see some exclamation because they didn't have punctuation in Hebrew. When you see a double, whether it be a name, whether it be a command, whatever it is, when you see a double, Abraham, Abraham, go, go, that is the Hebrew way of adding as much emphasis as you can possibly add. So here we have Jesus Christ shouting from heaven. Do you know how loud you got to shout for it to get all the way down here? You got to be good. Also, like, I wonder if everybody named Abraham on the whole earth was like, what? I mean, how did he make it so pointed, you know? Jesus is like, Abraham, Abraham, and it just hit him, just hit him. I don't know. But Jesus Christ, with as much emphasis that I would imagine rocked the heavens, rocked the earth. He says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham's like, here I am. I'm, I'm, here I, yeah. Here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son. You remember the emphasis I just told you about? He doubled it again. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Why? Because now I know. Remember all the way back in the front where it says God was going to test Abraham. It was God's plan the whole time. Everybody's like, well, see, it was because Abraham did what Abraham did. That's why God loved him. No, 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 no. God had chosen Abraham. God had made a covenant with Abraham. God is the one who had set him apart. And God was the one that was keeping him. God was the one that was carrying him. Abraham was living in the power that God had given him. And God was proving Abraham every step of the way. Why? Because he wanted to make much of Abraham? Do you really think? And now God loved Abraham. I'm not taking away from that. For some reason, when I start talking about the sovereignty of God and the power of God to overcome your, yours and my stupid decisions, they start thinking that I'm unloving to people. I am in no, I am not. I am not. It is not unloving to say that you are worthless. If I say that you are worthless, but it only highlights the fact that God is a loving God. And he killed his own son to come get your worthless tail because he thought you were that valuable. You see, apart from Christ, you are worthless. And so am I. There is nothing good that dwells in us. It's a lie straight from the pits of hell that the world is bought into and they're selling it on every corner. That everybody's just good. Everybody got a good heart. He got a good heart. 
Everybody's really good inside. Everybody's really good inside. You know, everybody. Murderers, rapists, and they, they really good on the inside. No, they ain't. The best of them, the best of the best of the best of the best are wicked and rotten to the core. Why? Mother Teresa is a rotten old witch. She is. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, she's a rotten old witch. You say, well, how can you say that? I'll give you the secret. And this is what you and, you and I both need to buy into. The moment you start thinking you're a good person, apart from Christ, you need to realize something. People say that I'm good or people are good because they compare themselves and they compare them to just somebody that in their subjective opinion is worse than they are. What do I mean, Mama? It's me like, you know, me, just, just on my own, right? No salvation, no redemption, like me, like, I'm a pretty good person compared to Hitler. <laughs> I'm like a saint, you know? Everybody wants to be around Brandon Poirier, you know, because he ain't killing millions of people. But we can all do that. I mean, there's somebody that was worse than Hitler. So if we play that game, right, we're just practical now. This is just this logic 101. If we play the, well, I'm better than this guy, so I'm good card, well, then we can make anybody good, except for whoever that one guy is that's the worst person in the world. Like, he's the only one that can't say, I'm a good person. <laughs> you know? Because he don't have anybody to compare himself to. Maybe like Satan. So I guess Satan's left holding the bag. Like he's the only one that can't say, I'm really good at heart. Like all the demons. I mean, maybe there's a demon worse than Satan. I don't know. But all the demons then would be able to say, are we good people? We just got a bad boss. You see what I'm saying? But here's the key. And this will keep you humble or keep me humble. Man, i got to remind myself of this because, you know, sometimes we get too big for our britches. And Brandon's not exempt. You aren't either. When we start feeling like we somebody, you know, apart from Jesus, because we are somebody in Jesus. We start thinking we're somebody. You know what we need to do? We need to say, my goodness is only is only revealed for what it is when I compare it to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Oh, you know, Mother Teresa, you know, and I don't want to disrespect, you know, I might not have used that joke because she did a lot of good, but it's still true. So I really don't mean to be disrespectful, but in practical speaking, truthful, Mother Teresa, or whoever the best person you can, Hambone, man, Hambone. I want to be like Hambone when I grow up. You know, he's done like one or two things wrong, I know of. You know? Hambone is a wretched old sinner when you compare him to Jesus Christ. Is Hambone in here? He'll tell you. 
He'll tell you. Brandon Poirier, oh man, next level wicked when compared to Jesus Christ. There's none good. No, not one. There's none righteous. No, not one. There are none who seek God. All have gone astray. None. Jesus Christ is the measure. Jesus Christ is the measure. And so here we are. And Abraham, he has this knife raised, ready to do the worst. And Jesus Christ screams from the heavens, Abraham, do not lay up. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. He was not saying, now I see your good works, and so I guess I'll let you in. Let me, let me, let me break it down this way. This is the way that I understand it. You read it yourself. You come to your own opinion. If you can correct me with the Bible, I'll stand corrected. I exist under the authority of the Word of God. You have the same authority that I do. It's, it, it means nothing for me to stand up here. The Word of God is the authority. Here's the way I understand it. When he says, Abraham, Abraham, stop. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Don't touch him. For now I know that you fear God. You know what he's saying? Now I know, Abraham, that you know that there is nothing good that you can do and you better do everything that I say because you realize how wretched your decisions are. What, you say, wait, what? Slow down a little bit. Okay. I mean, most of us are parents in here, right? Or we've got a parent like everybody in here. So can you imagine what would be going through your head? If God was like, hey, Angelia, uh, grab Kenzie and, and take him up on the hill in Brandon's driveway and, you know, stab a knife in his chest, bleed him out, and burn him alive. You'd be like, wait, wait, what? Hold up, God. Let's talk about this for a minute. I think that you may be calling the wrong Angelia, right? What I'm pointing out is, is that Abraham's, Abraham's decision-making properties, attributes, functions, like his mind had to be going, wait, wait, well, I, I don't know if this is, you know, I don't know. So he had, he had this choice to make. Does he obey Abraham or does he obey God? There's no way, unless he's just a psychopath, that he was like, Yes, sir, God, let's go. I'm going to kill this boy. Yes. <laughs> you know? I mean, I don't really think that, you know, you know, Father Abraham had many sons, and he enjoyed killing them. You know, I don't think that's how the song goes, right? Like, there's no way he wanted to go kill him, right? So you know he was eat up internally. So when he says, now I know that you fear God, then the only thing that I can understand or how to wrap my head around that is that Abraham believed God and he knew that God had more, uh, more capacity to choose what was right and to, and to make the decision for Abraham. And so Abraham said, yes, God, whatever you want. 
that's not what I would want to do, but I am going because I trust you. And we see this. Now, why did I say a while ago that I'm not going to end this with saying, now you go be Abraham, and we'll, we'll end it right here. Okay? You can actually come on up and start playing. I've run a little bit long. This is the end, 12-14. When we look at this text, what do we see? We touched on it a while ago. Who do you see? Who said it over here a while ago? You see Jesus. You see, Abraham, he was not making this decision because Abraham was a great guy. Abraham was make. Now, we're going to really get into this in the next few weeks. Why? Because it's going to start breaking down the promises that Abraham took part in. And it's fascinating to see. Now, whether you're a dispensationalist or whether you're a covenantalist or whatever you are, and I know those are bigger words, but whatever you believe about how it all works, Israel and the church and the promises, and is Israel going to get the physical land at some point down the road, and what was the promises, was the promise to Israel about the land was that what it's about or are they still look what you know it don't matter here's here's at least one reality that Abraham was trusting in the promises of God and the promises of God was not based on we know this from the text the promises of God was not based on his ability to obey but it was based on God's promises and his swear his word his oath that he gave on who he was in other words Abraham's promise the promise to of his blessing and his life and his keeping rested on God being willing to kill himself in order that Abraham would be able to survive is everybody with me God was willing rather to die than let Abraham fall. And in this story, we see demonstrated the most magnificent reality that's ever been made known to man. Abraham marches his one and only son up the hill. He is, he is pinned, strapped, attached to the wood. He is strapped to the tree. He is bound to be offered as a sacrifice at the call of the Father. The Father was the one that gave the command for the only Son to be sacrificed as a burnt offering that would arise and be a pleasing aroma to Him. Abraham obeys. He marches his son up the hill. The son goes willingly. He seems to struggle with it, wondering is this the way? Where, where is the, the offering? Is this, this, I don't know. Why don't you remember Jesus in the garden say, if there be another way. Oh, how my soul is troubled within me. If there be another way, nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. Abraham and Isaac go up the hill to slay the one and only son of Abraham strapped to the tree ready to die to be a sacrifice and Abraham the father willing to sacrifice his own son raises the blade to deliver the death blow and Jesus Christ the son of the living God the one and only begotten son of the living God cries out from heaven and he says wait do not lay a hand on the boy 
do not do it because I see your faith right here. And check this out. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a lamb caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, the lamb, and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. The lamb was slain in place of the person. You see, Abraham raised the knife and was going to kill the boy. And Jesus says, wait! I'm going to give you a lamb to put in its place. So many years later, in order to make the promise sure and stand behind when he said, I swear by myself and I cannot lie that you will be mine. You will be mine. You say, you need to choose to be his. Yes, you need to choose to be his, but you can't choose to be his unless he chooses you to be his. And if he chooses you to be his, you can't not choose to be his. Because God never fails. And you say, well, what about those who don't choose? Well, they don't choose. That's on them. That's not on him because he never called. They never listened. They got what they wanted. They went their way. They can't say anything. But to all he did call to be sons of God, they have the right to be called sons of God. And they will come because all that the Father has given to Jesus, they will come to him. And he will not lose not even one of them, but will raise them up on the last day. And in so doing, fulfill the will of the Father. You see, if God loses one, if Jesus Christ loses one, if one slips out of his hand, if he's not strong enough to keep them all then he fails to complete and keep and abide by the will of the father do you think God can fail do you think Jesus can fail absolutely not and as he told Abraham God would rather die than break his word and he did Jesus Christ was the only begotten son that walked up on the hill Jesus Christ was the son that got tied to the tree Jesus Christ is the one that was slain he was the one that was slaughtered and whereas Abraham raised the knife and Jesus said, wait. God the Father raised the knife and no one stopped him. By the hands of wicked men was he slain. The lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. You don't think that God knew exactly what he was doing when he marched Abraham up that hill. Jesus Christ had already been slain in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. God knew exactly what he was doing and he was painting a picture. For everyone who would read that story. And here's, here's the truth and the reality of it. The reason that you can trust God. The reason that you can trust God. Is that he was willing to kill and sacrifice and allow his son. Who went willingly. So that you might have life. You see. Isaac didn't die that day. Why? Because a lamb, a ram was slain, was slaughtered in his place. Something had to die that day. You see, when you stand before God, the question will be, who died? Who's going to die? And you'll either say, the the lamb died for me or you will die because you denied the lamb you say wait when we stand before God we'll already be dead no 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 I'm talking the second death the eternal death that never stops 
ongoing eternal torment, dying a million deaths a million times over, times a million forever and ever. What you decide to do with the Lamb of God, you're either going to die in place of the Lamb or the Lamb's going to die in place of you. Let's all stand to our feet. We talked about the intercessory prayer. Jesus Christ says in the Gospels, he says, anyone who acknowledges my name before men, I will acknowledge his name before the Father in heaven. Here's the reality. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, <clears throat> then the Lamb of God has been slain in your place. He took you off the chopping block and put himself on. And whereas Abraham's knife was stopped, nobody stopped the knife of God. And he experienced the complete. You say, why do you keep saying God killed Jesus? Why do you keep saying God killed Jesus? You do understand that while Jesus died by the hands of sinful, wicked men, that it was God's plan from, the, from before the foundations of the world to offer him up as a living sacrifice. That Jesus Christ, was he received the full-bodied, full-throated, the full cup, full measure of the wrath of Almighty God. The Bible says that it pleased him to crush him. What? Because in crushing Jesus, he lifted you up. All those who would call upon the name of Christ, call upon his name today. Seek after him. He is worthy, oh so worthy, church. Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Don't be, don't be left without him. Don't be left without him. Come and do business with God.